Hello, I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. If you've listened to any previous episodes, you'll know that the Bureau is dedicated to bringing back into the light, digging up, unearthing, hanging out to dry, rare, lost, half-forgotten stories from the counterculture. Also here at the Bureau, we love David and Goliath stories, narratives of individuals taking on the system, taking on the state. Well, in today's episode, we have both these things, a story from the counterculture, a very famous story from the counterculture, and the story of one individual, one man's crusade, mission. It's difficult to know how to describe it, as you'll see, but uh, if you're a procrastinator, as I am, and if you're not very good with deadlines, as I'm not, you may take heart in this man's story. But first, with regard to the counterculture, particularly in America, it's generally said that three events signalled the turning of the tide, the darkening of the hippie dream. And those three events were the Kent State shootings, when 13 unarmed students in a peaceful protest against the Vietnam War were shot by the Ohio National Guard in 1970. And the year before, when Meredith Hunter an attendee at the Altamont Music Festival was killed brutally by a member of the Hells Angels during a concert by the Rolling Stones. This was meant to be a peace concert, like the West Coast version of Woodstock. And earlier that summer, there were some murders which shook America and probably shook the world. They're colloquially known, of course, as the Manson murders, but they really should be called the Tate-LaBianca murders. Charles Manson, a small town car thief and criminal turned hippie messiah who claimed to be both Jesus and Satan had sent his disciples on a killing spree in Los Angeles. They butchered Sharon Tate who was pregnant with Roman Polanski, her husband's child at the time, and various of their friends who were in the same house. And then the very next night, the gang slaughtered a businessman and his wife, leaving messages and words scrawled upon the wall in blood. Another brutal killing. It was some months before Manson and the family, as the group around him were called, were arrested. There was a huge public trial and a shocked world, fascinated, horrified world, looked on. For any middle-class parents, for the establishment itself, it was conviction that the hippie dream was in fact a nightmare. A nightmare of free love, drugs, alternative thinking, long hair, rock and roll, all mixed together. Manson, it was said, was acting upon his theory of a coming race war, a theory which had been transmitted to him in the music of the Beatles, particularly in their track Helter Skelter. And Helter Skelter became the name of the world's best-selling true crime book, written by Vince Bugliosi, who was the chief prosecutor in the trial, detailing all the circumstances around the murders. So the truth of this is known, or is it? In 1999, a journalist was approached by a magazine in America to write a 30th anniversary piece on the Tate-LaBianca Manson murders, but given the instructions to find something different to write about. 20 years later, he finally published the products of his investigation. It's a book. It's called The Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the Sixties by Tom O'Neill. It's published by William Hyman. It's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary story of the circumstances of the murders of the trial. An extraordinary story of malfeasance, corruption, lying, hiding. And that's not Manson we're talking about here. 
Anyway, if you want to know more about it, read the book, or you could meet the man who wrote it and find out more right now, because I'm very pleased to say that he, Tom O'Neill, is with me now. Welcome, Tom. Hi there, Stephen. How are you doing? Very good. Tom, thank you for joining us. And first of all, congratulations on this book. It is an extraordinary thing. I'd like to describe it as a labour of love, but given the um, subject matter, that seems a bit strange. It's a extraordinary work of investigative bloodhoundery, I suppose. Stubbornness and perseverance in the face of resistance and obfuscation and threats and all sorts of stuff. So uh, thank you for that. But before that, because this is also your story, actually. So can you tell us who Tom O'Neill is and how you came to write this book? Uh, well, I was a... Uh East Coast person, born in New Jersey, raised in Philadelphia, went to college in the Midwest, transferred to New York University in Manhattan, graduated, and I wanted to be a, a playwright or screenwriter. And uh, to kind of support myself while I wrote bad plays, I was a horse and carriage driver in Central Park, a handsome cab driver. And during that time, the downtime, I started writing personal essays, some humorous, some kind of observational. And I'd send them into the local magazines in New York, like the New York Magazine, New York Daily News. And they were publishing them. And all of a sudden I thought, well, maybe journalism will be easier to crack, even though I'd never had a journalism class. And the next thing I knew, I kind of got a semi-steady gig at a the New York Daily News, a daily newspaper. And then um, from there, I got into the magazines, uh, Us Magazine, which was uh, owned by Jan Wenner, part of Rolling Stone. And it was a kind of a celebrity magazine, but it had a lot of serious reporting. And it was long. They had uh, three, 5,000-word stories. And I was doing celebrity profiles, but also investigative stories for them about the uh, entertainment industry. And that's where I got interested in kind of digging up secrets and exposing stuff, but it was all about entertainment. And then at some point, um, well, I had moved out to Los Angeles just for a couple of years to try it out, and I planned on going back to New York. And when I was out there, the magazine Us was changed to kind of resemble more of something like, I think you guys have OK or a Hello over there in Britain, more tabloidy, you know, bigger, splashy pictures, Sometimes the uh, photo captions are the whole story, you know, they don't have much more text. So myself and all the people from the magazine kind of bailed, quit at once. We didn't want to do that kind of thing. And uh, we moved over to a magazine called Premiere, which was a motion picture magazine. It was pretty, pretty highly regarded monthly. And um, my editors all kind of took over the top of the masthead there. And the one editor I'd worked with quite a bit at us, Leslie, um, wanted me over there too. Uh, but I needed to break in with a big splashy story first uh, as a freelancer. So she assigned, she called me up and asked me to do a story about what was then the upcoming 30th anniversary of the Manson murders. That was 1999. And I was not interested in doing it. I said, you know, hadn't this been written to death? Um, no pun intended, and, you know, what else could I say? I said I never read Helter Skelter. I was never really interested in Charles Manson or or what happened. But at the same time, I needed the job, and, you know, I think it would have paid me like $7,500 or something, which they don't pay anymore. You know, that was back then. uh, Magazines were kind of flush with cash, and I'd have about three months to report it. 
so she talked me into doing it, and I said, I just don't know what my angle's going to be. You know, what can I say about this that hasn't already been said? And she said, you'll find something you always do. Okay, so you've got a few months and $7,500 to do this thing. And before we talk about what happened next, um, the murders themselves had this huge impact in America and around the Western world. Um, and Charles Manson himself became this kind of almost like mythological figure. But do you remember when you were younger, the murders happening, and what was your reaction at the time? Well, that's the funny thing. I, I was 10 years old in 1969 when it happened, and I don't remember at all any of it or being interested in it, but my older brother, who's significantly older than me, eight, so he would have been about 18, he swears that I was obsessed with it and that I cut out articles on the case and put them in a scrapbook. And I said, well, find me that scrapbook because I have no memory of it. And I know I'd never read Helter Skelter, which came out five years later. Um, but, you know, I just remembered it as a, a lurid, horrible thing that happened. But I was more interested in sports and things and didn't pay much attention. <laughs> That's ironical considering um, what was to happen over the last 20 years. But could you give us, you've probably done it a million times before, but a little picture for anybody who shouldn't know um, of who Charles Manson actually was. Yeah, that's the hard part, but um, the nutshell version is Charles Manson was kind of a life, lifetime con artist from the time he was 12 or 13 years old. He was raised in uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio by kind of itinerant mother who was in and out of jail herself for petty crime, prostitution, and when he was very young, he'd just get pawned off on grandparents or aunts or uncles uh, while his mom did her jail stints. And she'd get out and pick him up and take him to another town and get arrested again. So he started committing crimes when he was around nine or ten, little things. And then he ended up in reform schools and federal institutions, uh, you know, juvenile detention halls for boys. And he really became what we call over here institutionalized because he never lived free after the age of about 11. He, he went from one institution to another. And when he was finally finished with, uh, when he turned 17 or 18 and was released on his own and uh, expected to kind of take charge of his life, he just went right into a life of crime. And it was mostly stealing cars and running prostitutes, being a pimp. So then he was going, being sent to federal prison in his early 20s for five, 10 years at a time. And every time he'd get out, he'd commit another crime or he'd violate his probation or parole. And this went on until 1967. It was pretty unremarkable uh, up to that point. You know, people just remembered him as a little squirrely guy that played guitar not so well and wanted to be a musician and was really interested in uh, kind of new age philosophies and uh, Scientology studied in prison and a little bit of the occult and also uh, Dale Carnegie. He read Dale Carnegie, although a lot of people say that he was illiterate, so it might have been taught to him. There's a lot of mysteries still. But when he was finally released in 1967 in Los Angeles, uh, after serving a 10-year term for... Um, uh, stealing a, a letter that had a check from a mailbox. Um, when he was finally released, he was paroled to Los Angeles, but he immediately violated his parole and uh, drifted up to uh, uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland. 
And he showed up at the parole office up there and they were shocked because he came in and said, I, I want to be here. I don't want to be in L.A. Uh, so you got to assign me an, an officer here. And that's not how it's done. In normal conditions, they would say, you're not even allowed in this district without permission. You're here demanding. And through some of my early investigating, I started uh, submitting FOIA requests, Freedom of Information requests, to the U.S. prisons to get hit these records to find out what had actually happened. I was really interested in that first year of freedom in 67 in San Francisco when he transformed into who we all got to know as Charles Manson. Um, it was a summer of love. It became famously known as the summer of love. And that's kind of what Manson emerged out of. He became kind of like this Metaphelian um, guru uh, who all of a sudden commanded the loyalties of first about four or five young women and that grew to 30 people over two years. And it was the first year in the hate from the spring of 67 till about spring of 68 that he really just just miraculously had this personality transformation and became a, a public figure in that community. Everybody knew who he was and everybody saw him and the control he had over the women. and. Um, he would go to the clinic with the women for two reasons. He would go to see his parole officer who was doing drug research there uh, for their weekly parole appointments. And the women were going to have their um, sexually transmitted diseases treated and pregnancies. And they walked behind him. They didn't speak to him unless they were spoken to first. If he needed, if he bent down to pick something up, they'd jump and grab it. So they became really well known as this group of crazy people, you know. I mean, these women following this man. And then in the spring of 68, they migrated to Los Angeles. And that's when they kind of penetrated the rock and roll Hollywood world through a musician named Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys. So, um, again, it's hard to tell it in a nutshell. But that was kind of the, the foundation story. And then what happened next was the murders. And it's difficult, isn't it, to underestimate the impact of those murders looking back. I mentioned in the introduction, they seem to be one of these events, historical events, which signal the turning of this golden hippie dream into something much darker. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, um, how it did affect uh, you know, the counterculture in America or the perception of the counterculture in America? Yeah, a lot of scholars and, and people like Joan Didion famously said that when she woke up the morning of August 9th and learned about what had happened to, to Sharon Tate uh, up at the house and some other people who she was friendly with, she said this was the end of, of the hippie dream, uh, the end of the 60s. Um, it was pretty shocking. And what's interesting to me was Nobody knew how or why the murders happened when they happened, but a lot of people immediately labeled them as the end of the hippies because these beautiful hippie people were killed, and you know, really horribly, ritualistically, with hundreds of stab wounds, blood writing on the wall. But um, it wasn't until three months later uh, when the group that had done the killings was identified on the front page of every paper in the world as a group of hippies that lived communally at a movie ranch outside of L.A. And the women wore peasant dress. They breastfed their babies. 
the men had long hair and necklaces and they looked like every hippie that uh, prior till then you thought were harmless flower children. Um, but now there was this veneer of evil and on horror associated with them. And to me, that was really the end of the 60s when you saw that these people that seemed harmless in the beginning, except to, except to um, the establishment. And, you know, the establishment was always afraid of what was happening to their kids because the kids are, ta- you know, they're just completely abandoning the norms and structures of their parents, you know, quitting school, taking drugs, not getting married, doing free love and fighting against the war. So there was what was considered a revolution was happening in America. Uh, And Lyndon Johnson, who was president in 68, chose not to run again. And it was pretty, pretty surprising because he just decided he couldn't end the Vietnam War. He didn't know how to. He was terrified of what was happening domestically. You know, he he had been convinced by J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, and uh, Richard Helms, the head of the CIA, that um, the Chinese communists had infiltrated the youth movement and there was going to be a war, like a a civil war in the United States between the races and the the left-wing political people. So Richard Nixon took over and he couldn't handle it any better than Johnson. Uh, and then everything culminated literally in August of 69 with this horrible massacre that kind of put a big end note on everything. Yeah, and one of the things which the book does, you know, very convincingly based on your investigations and extensive research and documents that you found, is that it would seem that it's very possible, if not probable, that Manson himself had been used prior to the murders as a means of undermining the hippie movement itself. That's certainly possible. You're very careful not to state anything as facts that you can't absolutely establish, but it seems likely that that is a possibility at least, that he, amongst other people, and uh, there's a whole cast of characters involved in this, you know, from the CIA, uh, various known about projects and stuff to do this, to undermine the potential social revolution to attack left-leaning groups and that Manson himself was possibly, very possibly, one of the means of doing that. Yeah, well, um, famously, the historical version of the murders that the prosecutor, Vince Bugliosi, presented to the jury and then later wrote, his book, which to this day is the best-selling true, true crime book of all time, Helter Skelter, he posited that uh, Manson had was convinced that there was going to be a race war, an Armageddon-type race war that would end life on the planet as we know it. And that will begin when the blacks finally rose up against the whites and wiped each other out. And he prophesied this from lyrics in the Beatles songs from the White Album that he said were messages to him from John Paul, Ringo, and George, and also from passages in the Bible. Um, And he convinced his followers that the race war was imminent, but he had found a hole in the desert where he was going to hide them during this race war. And he said that the blacks will prevail. They'll kill the whites. 
And then once all the whites are wiped out, he and his followers would emerge from the desert and take over the blacks because they weren't as smart as he and the whites. And they would um, make them their servants, slaves again, put them right back into slavery. And then he'd repopulate the world with his perfect offspring. That was his helter-skelter kind of scenario. Um, And the murders that were committed were committed because Manson had become impatient. The race war was supposed to start of its own accord, but it wasn't happening fast enough for Manson. So, and again, this is according to Bugliosi's official version, uh, Manson decided to light the spark to get it going. And he selected a house that Sharon, he didn't know who Sharon Tate was, but um, he selected a house at the top of Beverly Hills that he had been to once or twice to visit the former occupant, Terry Melcher, who was a young record producer. He was the only son, only child of Doris Day, you know, the most popular movie actress of her time. And he was a talented music producer. He produced The Birds, The Mamas and the Papas, Paul Revere and the Raiders. He worked with The Beatles, even. And uh, he had left that house, and Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate had moved in. Uh, To Manson, the house represented um, elite, white, beautiful, wealthy, hippie people. And he wanted it to look like the Panthers had killed those people. Um, Rather than killing people that, like a cop or something, he wanted them to kill the people that would have embraced them politically because they supported Panthers. The Black Panthers being the political revolutionary group founded in Oakland in agitating for black rights. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of like how the whites we now support are... Black Lives Matter. They're like a pet, a pet cause. So um, the murders were committed, and and they left signs that Manson thought would implicate the Panthers. Bloody uh, paw prints on the wall. Death to pigs. Um, and the police didn't make the connection that Manson had hoped. They did the murders a second night of another couple in an affluent neighborhood across town, the La Biancas, and it was even more bloody and gruesome with more slogans on the wall. That didn't work. Uh, Manson still fled out to the desert. He was eventually captured. And then Bugliosi, through interviews with Manson family members, he heard bits and pieces of this. Now, where I begin to disagree with Bugliosi's conclusions is I do think that Manson uh, preached this helter-skelter thing to his followers uh, and he used that to get them to do his bidding but I don't believe for a second that Manson ever believed it. I think there were other reasons for the murders and I think that Manson was being manipulated by outside forces. This is where it gets complicated. And it is complicated and you set it out the complications you know, at length in the book. And it's very apparent quite early on in your investigations that you meet with Bugliosi, the prosecutor, who's used to doing this, he's used to people asking him about what happened and he's used to giving his stories. And quite quickly, you and him at first, they're your sort of good buddies, aren't you? You go around to his house and his wife cooks you cakes and, you know, you're ringing each other up and it's all very chatty and stuff. But, of course, you start investigating as a journalist and you start to uncover all sorts of oddities. But tell me... Why? I mean, other journalists had looked at this. Many journalists had looked at it. 
What was it for you, somebody who's, as you said yourself, you hadn't been that interested in the murders themselves, but you got this commission to write a piece uh, in three months and you went, you set off on this 20-year odyssey. You would not let go. And I know it's, it came at a cost of financial hardship and probably all sorts of other hardships for you. You got your teeth into it and you just kept going like a bloodhound. Why? Here's the difference between me and other journalists who've looked at it. Um, the journalists who looked at the case at the time when it was happening, and I've, I interviewed quite a few of those old, old-time reporters, and they all told me, a lot of them, that they sensed that this, things didn't add up. But Watergate hadn't happened in the United States yet. That was like 1974 that it really exploded. And people just trusted official institutions. Reporters didn't so much, but it was really hard to investigate police and, and courts and, and parole boards and criminals probation programs because up until then, none of them had ever been exposed as being completely deceitful uh, until Watergate, until the, the biggest, most important institution in, in the United States, the presidency, we found out that they were committing crimes there. And that, after that, I think if these murders happened after that, people, there would have been people like me doing this kind of work. So nobody just ever came around to looking at the case, except for me, until 30 years later, from a jaundiced eye, you know, from like skepticism. And that was mostly because I couldn't figure out what to write about it without repeating the same old tripe that had been written about it. And once I found out new information, the frustrating thing was not being able to find a beginning and a middle and an end and explain it all. All I could see was, wow, you know, Bugliosi should have turned this over to the defense, and he didn't. And the fact that he didn't meant that the, the de- defendants didn't get a fair trial. They should have been able to use this evidence, and their defense attorneys should have been no- knowledgeable of it. And they, all the defense attorneys told me they never saw this particular evidence. It also meant that Bugliosi put key witnesses on the stand, Terry Melcher, some others, who created this narrative and this timeline of the murders that was a complete lie. And he knew it. He suborned perjury. Uh, If you suborn perjury as a prosecutor in a capital case, a murder case, if it's proven that you suborn perjury and the defendants get the death sentence, you can also get the death sentence, the prosecutor. So this was pretty serious stuff. Right, it was a very, very high-stakes game, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he found out what I had, you know, first he was kind of stalking me and calling people before I spoke to them and told some not to talk to me, and then he would call people after I'd spoken to them and uh, to find out what they'd said to me. And then when we had our final big face-to-face confrontation, eight, seven years after I'd begun this at his house, it was an explosive six-hour afternoon with a lot of screaming and yelling and threats. and it, uh, Yeah, and that was still only halfway through the 20 years. <laughs> it's a fascinating, grimly fascinating section of the book, your interviews and conversations with him and how he reacts when he finds out what you're up to. Um, there are many 
villains in this tale, of course. Manson is the worst, probably. And uh, But Bullios himself is a villain. He'd been up to all sorts of stuff before this case. He really shouldn't have been in the position that he was in. He got to all sort, up to all sorts of stuff later. He was not bothered about the truth. That was... or you know, due process, that stuff didn't seem to matter to him. Um, he was corrupt, I think. Probably that's the best way to describe it. He was, really was, a villain himself, right? No, and I said to people, he to me, he was as dangerous as, as Manson. I mean, Manson ordered the deaths of people, you know, anywhere from seven to nine, possibly more. But Bugliosi, I believe, hid the deaths of other people that were killed because if he had allowed those deaths to be connected to the Manson family, it would have upended his story that got, all he wanted to do was get them in prison, that core group, at any cost, uh, and be, have as sensational a trial as possible because he wanted out of the DA's office. He wanted to ultimately run for president, he wanted to be a famous author, thinker, public speaker, and he he could have he did run for higher office, but some of the scandals that I write about in my book, personal scandals, where he was involved with uh, stalking his milkman because he thought his milkman was the father of his child, and then threatening him, and and then beating up a mistress who wouldn't have an abortion. All this stuff came out and ruined his ambitions to ever get elected to office. You. As I said already, but it's worth restating, you're very careful not to come to definitive conclusions. You lay out the evidence, you lay out all the things that you find, you suggest some uh, narratives which seem to fit or are much nearer to the truth. And you set out to, in the beginning, I think, to dispel the untruths and the lies. And when it comes to the truth, do you think that it is out there, that there is an actual truth behind all this stuff um, that can be found now? Yeah, I think there are probably at least a half dozen living people who know what really happened. Linda Kasabian, who testified for the prosecution and got off without any jail time. You know, I spent two weeks in horrible Tacoma, Washington, where she lives. It just rains every day. It's gray and cold, and she would not talk to me. She's given three interviews over... 50 years, you know, since she got off, and she's constantly contradicting herself. I don't believe a word of what she said when she testified. I think she knows the truth. I think Watson knows the truth. I think the truth is on these audio tapes that when your listeners, if they read the book, they'll see why the tapes are so important and why the LAPD, it's the only piece of evidence in this case that they refuse to release, and they've never given the same story for why they won't release it. There's a um, parole hearing today for Leslie Van Houten, one of the women murderers, and I work closely with her attorney, and he's been trying to get the tapes released through the courts, and at the parole hearing today, he's making another argument publicly, so I don't know if they'll cover it in the UK, but it'll be covered tomorrow. The tapes will be written about in the papers, but I think that, yeah, the answers are there, and, you know, I, I could report on this another 20 years, maybe get the answers, and I don't want to do that, but I might do some follow-up because there was so much information left out. And since the books come out, you know, I get calls and messages a lot, and one out of every 50 actually is something worth following up. 
And it, it's exciting when you get that. But at the same time, I go, oh, no, they're dragging me back in. <laughs> you do express uh, that this is somewhat provisional and there's a lot more information that's not actually in the book and there's a lot more to come. But I think in the end, in fact, you, you used a, uh, you worked with another author, um, Dan Peepenbring, to actually finish the book just to get it out, I imagine, for the sake of your mental and financial health. And if it's not too personal a question on that subject, I mean... How on earth did you survive uh, financially, you know, during all this time, 20 years long after the original fees for this article had expired? It was crazy. So I, what happened was after the three-month magazine story extended beyond three months, I had kind of sucked the editor-in-chief of the magazine into the story, Jim Miggs. And he got so obsessed with it, like I was, he kept saying, keep going, keep going. And he would give me a separate contract every month without a deadline for, I think the total was almost two years. He paid me just to report this story. And then he got fired um, and by the board of directors. And I was never told it was because of this, but I was told that it might have been because of this. And when he left, the replacement came and saw that they had spent a substantial amount of money on a story for one reporter working on for two years. And he, he called me up. He said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm the new editor here. I took Jim's place. I need this story in a month, 30 days, whatever you have, turn it in. And that's when I got my book agent. And my book agent, through a couple of months, got me out of my obligation to the magazine we had to make a settlement agreement and promises about me repaying them. So at that point, then I spent about two or three years just on my own reporting and writing a book proposal. And I borrowed from my family, who were very generous and luckily in a position to do it. And then we sold the book to the first publisher, Penguin Press, for a lot of money. I mean, it was more than any nonfiction writer had gotten for a first book, I was told, in a, in a long number of years. And um, then they canceled the deal. So I had money then until 2012 when they pulled the plug on the deal. And they said that they just couldn't wait any longer. It was too late. And the main reason was it, it was Penguin Press and Penguin and Random House were merging. So they were cutting loose all their projects that hadn't happened quick enough. But then they sued me for a return of the advance. So that really crippled me financially. So for the first time, uh, I ha during the two years of the lawsuit, I had to drive an Uber. And I would work all day and drive Uber at night. I never stopped working on this. And I couldn't take anything out and try to sell it until the lawsuit with Penguin was, was resolved. It was, but I owed them a massive amount of money. And then Little Brown came, the, the, who ultimately published the book. And I, I knew at that point I needed a collaborator. I just couldn't do this on my own anymore. And I just lucked out. I mean, there have been a few candidates before Dan, the one I got. But Dan was just the perfect perfect guy. Uh, he, he, uh, his name's Dan Pipenbring. Before me, he was working with Prince on Prince's memoir, and Prince died, I think, four or five months into their collaboration. And it was a shame. I mean, it was obviously a shame that we lose Prince, but Dan was really close, had become really close to him. But that helped me because once Prince died, 
Dan couldn't continue on the book until the prince's estate resolved a million different legal matters. So he had a year, he thought, to do something. And his agent is at the same agency as mine. They put us together. And, you know, the guy was, I think, 28 then. He wasn't alive when any of this stuff happened. And I thought, oh, he's too young. He, doesn't, he worked with Prince, but he'd never written a book before. It, he turned out to just be perfect. I mean, to get all my thoughts in order, help me organize. We'd write, he'd write a chapter, I'd write it, and we'd mesh it together, go back and forth. And we cranked it out in about two years. Right, so there is a lot more to come. You know, you made hundreds of interviews. You know, you spent months and months in libraries and digging up documents and archives. You created this archive yourself, and I hope that we're going to see more of that in due course. But apart from the Bugliosi, um things, there's when you start digging, you start to uncover all sorts of other things. And really, there is this big question, which is that how was Manson able to get away with so much stuff prior to the murders? He is continually uh, committing crimes of various sorts, he has a parole officer who seems to go to extraordinary lengths to keep him out of prison. And in fact, this is the thing which opens up all sorts of other stuff into the CIA and all these possibilities that he was being used in some way because he is, it seems, being protected for some reason. And one of those reasons could be that he was being used as part of these covert operations which the CIA were operating. I mean, they're all known about now. Um, as we said earlier, to deliberately uh, debunk, destroy, undermine the left and the counterculture itself. Yeah, well, um, there were two uh, domestic programs in the United States, illegal, that had begun in 1967 to counter and kind of stop the what they saw as a coming left-wing revolution. You know, it was the height of the Vietnam War demonstrations. The Panthers had really exploded in 1965 and 66 in the Bay Area, but spread out across the country with cells in every city. And um, Manson, you know, emerged into this petri dish of all that and uh, was a very useful person for, for, for certain groups. The there was COINTELPRO, which was a FBI domestic operation where they were planting uh, informants and agitators in black militant groups, white anti-war groups, hippie groups, and trying to get them to provoke them to do to commit crimes that they could be arrested for, to commit murders of oppositional groups, leaders, and to neutralize each other. And it was a pretty horrific operation that wasn't exposed until the early 70s. And when it was, uh, the FBI admitted being responsible for upwards of 30 Black Panther deaths, or Black activist deaths that were killed at their provocation. Excuse me. the CIA had a program called Chaos with the same objective, that they were infiltrating groups and then provoking them. So Manson actually, in Bugliosi's narrative, believed that the Panthers were about to attack him and he had to do something to neutralize and stop them first. 
And the way that Chaos and COINTELPRO did this was feed these people false information, plant people within them who would say, I've got this intelligence, they're about to attack, let's attack them first. Um, so what I found out through once I got Manson's parole record was he'd been arrested again and again and again, and he was released when he shouldn't have been, at, usually through his parole officer, Roger Smith, the criminologist. And his, his crimes got escalatingly more and more serious up until the murders. But by the time the murders occurred, he was under very 24 uh, 7 surveillance at the Spawn Ranch. And I was able to get all the documents showing that they knew where he was, what he was doing. Um, the murders happened August, the evening of August 8th, 1969. And when I got access to these Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, files that nobody else had seen, I found documents in there saying that Manson was up at the Big Sur area in the Bay, around San Francisco with a runaway teenage girl about 14 years old, and he was expected back on August 7th with a big cache of drugs. Um, and that's exactly where he was. He, he, the weird thing was he met the 14-year-old girl in Big Sur and then brought her back and this memo was written in Los Angeles the same day. So this was a very close surveillance. I have no idea where they were getting the information that the girl was the informant. Um, and then they said he plans there's going to be a big attack between one bike rival bike gang against another, and they're gathering guns and all this. Well, that was wrong, at least for that day. What, what happened the next night was there was this big attack, but at Sharon Tate's house. So... Um, is much more clearly laid out in the book, but um, when you look at the record of his arrests and release and, and, and how he was allowed to go to places kind of to serve the objectives of these illegal agencies, it's hard to think that they weren't, that there wasn't something to do with that. So another villain in this whole sorry story is Richard Helms of the CAA, the, who directing these incredibly uh, intrusive, illegal, manipulative, unethical projects using hallucinogenic drugs, hypnosis, these attempts to develop means of mind control. You know, it was the Cold War. Maybe the idea was is that the Russians were at it too. Um, but they definitely had ideas that they should experiment with this stuff to see if they could actually control people, weaponize them in some way. And that Manson was an experiment or experimentee that had gone out of control. The objective of MKUltra, which was the CIA, CIA's brainwashing program, was to create program killers, people who could be hip, using drugs, hypnosis, sleep dep deprivation, everything that happened to the girls under Manson's command. He would give them LSD, lots and lots of doses of LSD, and then talk them through these trips, telling them that he was God and Jesus rolled into one, and he was the ultimate right, and they were, you know, um, and they wouldn't sleep for days at a time. Uh, he did what the CIA had hoped to do. He did it in under two years, about a year and a half. He had about 20 people who all he had to do was say, go up to that former house of Terry Melcher. There's a group of people up there. Kill them as, as horrifically as you can and leave a sign and then come back. And they didn't even hesitate or ask. They just went and did it. 
and they came back, no remorse, they had become robots. Uh, Manson, when he was going to the Hate Ashbury Free Medical Clinic to see his parole officer, Roger Smith, there was another uh, character there named Louis Jolly West. And Jolly West was a very prominent psychiatrist who was an expert in LSD and hypnosis. He had deprogrammed the uh, Korean prisoner, prisoners of wars who had been brainwashed during the Korean War as captive pilots uh, when they were captured and denounced uh, the United States and, and said that the United States had used germ warfare. When they came back, Jolly West was a young uh, a colonel in the army and he and four or five other psychiatrists got those people deprogrammed and they said they were brainwashed and he wanted to learn and the CIA wanted to learn how they were brainwashed. He became an integral part of MKUltra but when MKUltra was exposed in the mid-70s, West was named as a possible um, active participant of someone who was you know, illegally giving drugs to people without their knowledge, and he denied it and, and, and was never investigated. I found in his archive at UCLA, he ended up at UCLA after he died, all of his papers, and in his papers was correspondence between him and Sidney Gottlieb, who was a scientist, who they called him Dr. Death, who ran the MKUltra program for the CIA. And Jolly West wasn't just, you know, an asset. He helped, he wrote the blueprint for the whole program. He was at the Hague Clinic when Manson was there every day for that summer uh, at looking for people to be candidates. So it's a lot of coincidences, but they're pretty remarkable. And it's it's better to see them in the book because everything's contextually laid out. Absolutely. Um, Tom, during this whole 20 years odyssey, uh, we know that Bugliosi and other people were threatening you with lawsuits, trying to get you to stop digging. Um, did you feel, bearing in mind the fact that you were getting into some very marshy ground politically about the institutions in America, did you feel resisted? or even threatened by any of them? Resisted all the time. I didn't feel threatened too often. A lot of people think that I must have been getting like letters under my door or strange calls in the nights. The only people that threatened me like in a very significant way were Bugliosi, um, a couple cops, uh, a couple other uh, former district attorneys, and... Uh, you know, Manson, but I never took Manson seriously, and some of the followers, but, um, and, and some drug dealers and stuff who were involved in, in, you know, the drug selling that was going on at the that victim's house. But uh, I never felt, you know, a lot of people say, were you followed? Did you think your phones were tapped? I never felt any of that was happening. You did mention that there were five or six people out there still who you think do actually know the truth of what went on. Um, who are those people? Linda Kasabian, Tex Watson. Uh, San, I don't know if your readers are going to know who they are. There's a core group in the Manson family who didn't go to prison. Sandy Good, who was very close to Manson. Nancy Pittman. Uh, Squeaky, Lynn Fromm, who did go to prison for the assassination attempt of, of Gerald Ford. She's out now. All of these people, I went to their doorsteps and begged them to talk to me, and they wouldn't. Uh, Steve Grogan, um, I think Bugliosi's wife, who worked very closely with him, knows the truth. 
A few people, unfortunately, have died in the last few years who I think know the truth. Um, and what do you think stops them telling the truth now? Well, I think, uh, I think the answers, the best source for the answers are the audio tapes of Tex Watson describing how the crimes were committed, why, you know, in a very detailed account, according to his attorney who took them, and it was before any of them had been publicly identified. It's the first recorded account of the murders. Um, I believe that if they were to release those tapes, every Manson family member would have to be freed because you would see that their whole uh, prosecution was based on lies. And there's, what, three or four left in prison? You know, they've been in prison for more than 50 years now. They'd all have to get new trials. And it would be a disgrace for the DA's office and, and the prosecution because it was really a slam dunk case. I mean, they had all the evidence they needed. Bugliosi didn't have to do what he did. Um, and it would be... Uh, uh, you know, after the O.J. case, not convicting O.J. was a big um, embarrassment for, for Los Angeles law enforcement. If it ever came out that this whole case against this group was fabricated, that they definitely did it, but that all this other stuff happened and there were other people involved who were protected, people who might have been more responsible even, you know, government people. All that information is just too damaging to the status quo. Do you think that Linda Kasabian or Tex Watson have been incentivized in some way to not tell the truth? Well, I think Tex can't speak because uh, his only way of getting out is saying everything he's told. He testified at his own trial and he has to, at every parole hearing, he's had 30 over 30 years, he has to relive the night and say everything he did. If all of a sudden he said, well, you know what, I've been making it up for 30 years. Uh, actually, there was a CIA agent who was telling us what to do. It, that wouldn't work for him because they're going to say, why didn't you tell us this 30 years ago? He has nothing to gain. And right now, he was a puppet of Manson. The image of him is, his argument is, I was so brainwashed, I didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing. If he made it seem like he had more sense of mobility or choice, that's not going to help. Linda never had to go to prison. You know, she, she drove the getaway car two nights, um, and she was on the property at Tate. She didn't participate, but I, I believe that she knows so much more. I mean, Bugliosi completely changed her history, her character, made her seem like this sweet little innocent hippie. She was a biker chick from Boston who'd been arrested a whole bunch of times prior to that. Some of that was for uh, drug transactions and things. She was older than the other woman, and she got off, you know, pretty scot-free. Right, so... We're drawing to a close, and if we can, maybe we can go sort of full circle right the way back to Manson himself. I know you had a brief, couple of brief phone calls with him, but what do you think it was that meant that a petty criminal, you know, with a terrible childhood, was able to turn into this messianic figure who was able to control and influence other people so much uh, that, that he could get them to do these, commit these awful crimes. Now I wish I had my copy of Helter Skelter in front of me. Um, there's a paragraph in Helter Skelter, it's in the epilogue of the book, where Bugliosi says, after he's written about the whole, you know, they've gone to prison, uh, they're put away for life, 
And then he kind of writes about what he learned from this. And he says, the one thing that I've never been able to figure out, the biggest mystery of this case, is how a a tiny 32-year-old ex-con from West Virginia could learn how to so manipulate and take over the minds of young, mostly innocent, and mostly female followers and transform them into robotic, you know, um, savage killers who would act just on his command. It's something that to this day keeps me up at night. And he says, is it something he learned when he was in prison? Is it something he intuited it? Or, and this is how the paragraph ends, is it something he learned from others? We'll never know. And when I read that in the very beginning, before I'd ever even heard of MK Ultra, Jolly West, or Chaos, or all these secret organizations, I knew about none of that. That's what made me go to the hate, because I thought, well, he became that person in 1967 to, to 68, and then he went to L.A., and hardly anything had been written about his time in the hate. So I literally was up there for about six months interviewing everybody, and that's when I started coming across all this stuff, and that's when I decided there's a good chance this was shared with him by others, either in a way that he wasn't even aware of or he was aware of. And then Wes told his CIA handlers in 65, he had learned how to remove true memories from people without their knowledge using hypnosis and LSD and replace them with false memories. And they had no idea which were real and and which weren't. What do you think Manson's motivation for not telling the truth was? I mean, was it possible that he was incentivized in some way or still being manipulated? That's my speculation. I mean, he once he was uh, incarcerated after the trial was over, he went to uh, Vacaville where they do serious um, drug experiments and research. And he was a part of stuff that the, the government has never said what. They could have done the same kind of thing they did to him before, after... Uh, I, I really don't think he knows what he did, or he did love the notoriety of being Charlie Manson. He didn't want to get out of prison. Um, he, he didn't even go to his parole hearings for the last 10 years of his life. I talked to his last attorney, and he said, you know, I don't even know why I'm representing him. He said, this is my home. I don't want to leave. I didn't want to leave in 1967. This is all I've known. He goes, but, you know, he is enough. he got so many donations that he would pay him mostly to try to get him better um, treatment in prison because he was always being put in the hole for his bad behaviour. Right, Okay. Well, of course, he's dead now, so maybe we'll never know. But let's talk about you and what's next. Obviously, you've got a huge amount more material didn't make it into the book, and big though the book is. Uh, So what's next? I mean, are you going to publish more about this or more about some of the other things which you found out during the investigation? Or are you, I'm done with all that, I'm just going to write a book about organic vegetables that's what i keep thinking i want to write like a fairy tale for children but i have a feeling every time i try to think seriously about doing something there's so many little elements that were completely left out of the book you said the sirhan assassination of robert f kennedy um i got contacted by bobby kennedy the third about a month or two ago and he and his wife and his father robert kennedy jr don't think that Sirhan killed uh, Robert Kennedy. And they're working on a project that they want me to be involved with, a motion, or a 
TV, a docu-series that would examine the Sirhan uh, or the Kennedy assassination, both, actually both Kennedy assassinations and Martin Luther King. So, I mean, people like that reach out to me and I meet with them. I've got a lot of, uh, I want to do a podcast or a documentary. I want to get a lot of the material out there. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a book. So you're not going to write the fairy story just yet, but I think I read somewhere that the book itself has been optioned and it is going to be turned into a film or a series. Well, Amazon Movie Studio optioned it. Before it was written, they got a hold of the book proposal and um, they renewed the option once and the option's up again in um, November. So the writer is furiously working on a script and I really wanted it to be a limited series, you know, like eight hours or something. But Amazon really wants a feature film and once I sign away the rights, I have no say in it. But luckily, the writer has told me, he goes, now I know why it took you 20 years to write the book. He said, it's so hard to try to get all this information into one, you know, kind of conventionally written two-hour movie. He goes, I wish I had a limited series. And I said, then just write it like that and turn it in and see what they say. So he's, I'm going to write to him this week and find out where they're at. But um, we think that they're excited with what he's doing so far. Um, but I'm not asking too many questions because I don't want to interfere. And they get scared if the writer gets too, you know, nose buddy and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Well, that is it. I'm going to put in the show notes where people can find you online because you publish a lot more stuff uh, via Instagram and Facebook about your investigations. Um, and I trust that you do get a chance to write that fairy story. Maybe we, you can come and uh, tell it to us. Uh, happy tale to end a postscript to all that other brutal stuff. No more nightmares, just sweet dreams. Um, it's an amazing book. I urge people to read it and to or listen to it. You can get it in Audible too. Uh, and more details in the show notes. But, Tom O'Neill, thank you very much. We really appreciate not only uh, this interview but and the book itself, but your incredible odyssey uh, to seek the truth. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Stephen. So there you have it. Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. The Manson murders and the whole story around Manson and the family are very grim indeed. However, I did find Tom's story rather inspiring in these days of fake news and all that sort of stuff. Uh, just that somebody could be so devoted to finding out the truth, or at least getting rid of the untruths, that they would just keep going like that for 20 years at an incredible personal cost. So that in itself, I thought, was a rather wonderful story. I hope you thought so too, and I hope you enjoyed, is that the right word, this episode. Um, you can find out more about us at bureauoflostculture.com. We'll be back with more Tales from the Counterculture to share next time. <laughs>